Thank you, sir. Good morning, church. We'll be looking at this passage in a moment. Um, I really want to bring you up to speed. A lot of you know this, um, but we had a meeting the other night and overwhelmingly uh, was in favor of moving to um, Evangelical Free Church of America and the name change of Living Hope. So we are Living Hope. I mean, we always have been. Just the name has changed. Mission's the same, but we plan to do the same. We still trust in the same God, but what name change there can be some freshness around that too, and we just pray that God continues to lead us in this new endeavor for us as a church, and we praise Him uh, for where He has been taking us and where He'll continue to take us. All right, this passage here, hope your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a true story uh, of a very important man who shoved his way to the head of the ticket line after his flight had been canceled. I must get on the next flight, and it has to be first class, he bellowed to the agent behind the counter. Well, I'll be happy to assist you in a moment, sir, she patiently replied, as soon as I take care of these other folks in front of you. Well, the passenger was irate. He said, do you have any idea who I am, he shouted. Do you? Do you know who I am? And without replying, the agent picked up the airport intercom and announced to the whole terminal... May I have your attention, please? We have a passenger here who doesn't know who he is. If anyone can reclaim his identity, please see the agent at gate six. Now, kudos to her, right? This morning, I want us to do some thinking around our identity. Who are we? Identity is, uh, we might think of it as your self-definition of who you are, your value, and your purpose in life. Clayton King spoke of it this way. He said, identity is what the most important person or people in your life thinks about you. Who is that for you? And many people, I do as well, wrestle at times with issues of identity. Often, it revolves around the question, am I enough? Am I man enough? Am I adequate enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Will I win enough? Am I good enough? And sadly, the world of advertisement plays on that and suggests we are not enough. If only you have this product, you will have enough or be enough. You need this brand, drive this car, have this body shape, take this trip, and on it goes. And social media exasperates the issue by posting the best version of themselves that competes with everyone else's best version. And so you see the pic, pics of someone else's vacation or remodeled kitchen or perfectly happy family, and you wonder, why is her life so much better than mine? Why does he look so much happier? Well, if we choose to build our identity on our smarts, our looks, our resume, our wealth, our abilities, it will never be enough. We will always feel insecure. In the movie, The Greatest Showman, which is an account of P.T. Barnum's rise to success, there's a, a scene where P.T. Barnum and his wealthy uh, prospective father-in-law, 
And as his love charity leaves with Barnum, her father's parting words were to him, she'll be back, she'll tire of your life of having nothing and come back home. In other words, he'd never be good enough for his daughter. And it played right into Barnum's insecurities that no matter how many times his wife Charity told him she had everything she wanted, he couldn't accept it. Now how true that is for a lot of us. We live our lives plagued with the question, am I enough? And we're driven by that to prove to others and to prove to ourselves that we are. And Peter here, under the superintending of God, he writes some words to some scattered believers who may just be in jeopardy of forgetting their identity as God's children. These believers were encountering undeserved suffering and were displaced by persecution. So if you're not in your Bibles, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 in a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's towards the back of your Bibles. If you get to Revelation, come back a little and you will find 1 Peter. And we are in our fifth week in our sermon series on living on hope. You see, it's critical that in the days we are in that we attach our hope to something substantial, something that can anchor us in tough times. Well, in this section we're looking at this morning, we find words of encouragement that in trying times, we can live on hope that comes to remembering who we are in God's eyes. What does God think of us? When we build our identity on God's view of us, that's enough. Let me say it again. It's really our takeaway for this morning, our bottom line. When we build our identity on God's view of us, that is enough, or at least it should be. And as the world around us tries to shake who we are, we can stand strong, church, in our true identity. When His view of us is enough, we can weather any of the storms out there. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. My first principle, my first heading this morning is our identity is shaped after Jesus Christ. Our identity is shaped after Jesus Christ. Get your eyes on verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Now Peter here speaks of Jesus as the living stone. Now it really kind of seems as a, a little bit of an awkward phrase at first because stones typically have no life in them. Growing up, and I'm definitely dating myself here, pet rocks were a thing. Pet rocks, yes, pet rocks were a thing because we're not really that bright sometimes. And it made the inventor a millionaire almost overnight. The inventor, Gary Dahl, he came up with the idea while sitting at a bar listening to his friends complain about their pets. And it gave him the idea of a perfect pet, a rock. You didn't have to feed it, walk it, bathe it, groom it, or clean up after it. It would not die, it would not become sick, or be disobedient. Of course not. <laughs> it was not living. It was dead. And so a living stone sounds like a contradiction. We use the phrase, you're stone dead. Well, this stone here, referring to Jesus, is spoken of as living. It's the same idea that Jesus 
used when he spoke uh, to the Samaritan woman about coming to him as living water. And when he told the crowd of people, I am the living bread. When Peter spoke of the hope that we have in this, in this letter that he wrote, he called it a living hope. When Peter spoke of the word of God, he called it a living word. Now he talks about a living stone. Christ is living. And because of that one fact, cowardly acting disciples were turned into bold and fearless witnesses. And that can be the same true of us. Because Christ lives, he has living relationships with living people. Because Christ lives, that same resurrection power can enable us to overcome that nagging habit. Because Christ lives, we can live in victory. Because Christ lives, I can open my mouth and speak of him when everything inside of me shakes in fear. We can carry out that task that seems daunting. We can obey when the pull feels so strong in a wrong direction. We can, we can, we can. Why? Because Jesus Christ is a living stone. And here's something absolutely glorious. He issues an invitation here at the beginning of verse 4. Notice here. Come to him. Come to him. Now, what does that mean to come to him, the living stone? Well, it's not limited to our first coming to him and our initial conversion. It's not specific to that. It is a call to keep coming to Christ. We are to continually draw near to him. This coming to him is closely connected uh, grammatically here and in the original to the phrase down in verse 5, being built into a spiritual house that we're going to come back to in a moment. But for now, I want us to grab a hold of this point is that we need to think here as we're looking at uh, coming to Him and being built into a spiritual house. We need to think of this uh, corporately, not individually. Spiritual house that we're being built into is what? The church. And when Peter spoke of the spiritual house, his readers would have thought temple, the, the place where the Shekinah glory inhabits it. Well, Peter's use of spiritual house refers to the place where the Holy Spirit indwells his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, collectively. Our personal devotion to Christ contributes to the corporate growth of the church. Have you ever thought of it that, that, that way? We really ought to. Church is in the pro- Christ is in the process of, of building up his church. And it can only be accomplished by coming to this living stone. Now there's something else that I want us to see about this living stone as it describes Jesus here. I'll go down to verse 6 for a moment. Peter references the prophet Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 28, 16. And he speaks of Jesus as a chosen and precious cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? Well, I don't want to bore you with the details, but just go here with me just for a moment here. In the temple complex at the southeast corner of Jerusalem, the cornerstone measured at 39 feet 4 inches long, 7 feet 10 inches wide, and 43 inches tall. It is said that one stone, like a cornerstone, could weigh as as much as 80 tons. It was the most important part of the structure. 
The cornerstone was not only the foundation, but the cornerstone had angles to it. Therefore, you had to line up all the other stones uh, to that cornerstone. So if the cornerstone was off, the stones were off. If the cornerstone was on, the stones were on. If the cornerstone was strong, get this, the stones were strong. The cornerstone became then the basis for determining every measurement, uniformity, and alignment throughout the rest of the building project. The cornerstone was the reference point for the whole building. It would determine the shape and position of the entire structure. Listen, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of our lives. He's the cornerstone of this church. He sets the angles. He gives the direction. We better never forget that. He is the foundation on which everything in the Christian faith is built upon. He is the one we are to set our lives into alignment to. Our lives are to be set in reference to the cornerstone. What's your cornerstone? What is your cornerstone that you're building your life on? Is it enough? Now, there's something else about this cornerstone that I want us to see as it relates to our identity here. Again, in verse 6, in quoting Isaiah 28, 16, Peter says, let me read the whole thing again. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, get this. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, he goes down and talks more on this in 7 and 8 that we're just not going to get to. But I want you to see what this is saying here. If the cornerstone has nothing to be ashamed of, you and I have nothing to be ashamed of. If the cornerstone was honored, you are honored. If the cornerstone is precious, you are precious. If he was, when you come to Christ, if, if he was accepted by, by the Father, then you are accepted by the Father as we come to him. And if that's your identity... If, if you know that you're loved like that, then you don't have to look around to see who it is that will affirm your value, who it is that will make you feel better about yourself. You are free from trying to prove yourself to others. And that is freeing. In an interview in 2017 with Esquire magazine, Former Beatles star Paul McCartney at the age of 75, and he thought 64 was old, some of you will get that reference, other of you will not. But he was asked at 75 if he felt that he still had something to prove. McCartney responded, he said, yeah, all the time. And it's kind of a silly feeling. And I do actually uh, sometimes talk to myself and say, wait a minute. Look at this little mountain of achievements. There's an awful lot of them. Isn't that enough? He says. But maybe I could do a bit better. Maybe I could write something that's just more relevant or, or new. And, and that always, he says, drags you forward. I mean, I never felt like, oh, I did good. Nobody does, he says. Even at the height of the Beatles, he says, I prefer to think there's something I'm not doing quite right. So I'm constantly working on it. I always was. We always were. Folks, is there a better way to live than that? Driven? Driven like that? What if we found our identity in Jesus Christ and we live called rather than driven? 
What if we lived with the awareness that we are loved by God no matter what? What if we lived knowing we are precious to Him because Jesus is precious to Him? I mean, I mean wouldn't that change how we live this week? Wouldn't it change our approach to decisions and, and things that come at us this week? Wouldn't it change our approach to relationships that we would serve others rather than they demand that they serve us? Alright, our true identity is derived from him. I need to get to my second heading this morning. Each of us contributes to the overall shape of the church. Principle number two, each of us contributes to the overall shape of the church. Look with me at verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones built upon the living stone, the cornerstone. And not only have you come to the living stone, but you are also become a living stone, right? When you come, you become. When you come to Christ, you become more like him. Well, how do we become more like him? Well, context, verse 5, as you're built together. Not just as an individual, you have your quiet time with the Lord. No, it's as we're built into the spiritual house, the church. Listen, you can't really expect to be a flourishing, growing Christian if you aren't being built together. Overstatement? Work it out. But our, one study showed, though, one study showed that 81% of professing Christians, 81% of those who would call themselves born-again Christians believe that you can have a flourishing Christian life without going to church at all. Don't buy it. I mean, that may be American, but it's not New Testament. It's not God's way. God's way of growing you and growing these other people's stones is by taking these living stones and placing them in the church. Each of you represent a vital part in the building of his people. All right, take, take for instance, in a brick wall, it has all kinds of stones um, in, in this one brick, right, has all kinds of stones above it that are heavily dependent upon that one brick, right? And then that one brick is dependent upon all the other bricks below it, right? So every stone, every brick is dependent on the others. And if one brick or stone is removed, it would shake things up. The, the wall could even collapse. All right, here's a hard question. Are you so built into people's lives here at Living Hope? Are you so built into people's lives here at Living Hope that if you stop coming, things could possibly collapse? Have you thought of that? We are not isolated living stones, but stones that are meant to fit together, interlocking, interdependence. We're all stones in the same building. There's a story about a king of Sparta in ancient Greece who boasted to a visiting monarch about the mighty walls of Sparta. But this monarch came in, he looked around, he didn't see any walls. And, and he finally said to the king of Sparta, I'd like to see those walls you boast about. Show them to me. 
And the Spartan king pointed with great satisfaction to some disciplined and well-trained troops, part of Sparta's mighty army, and he said, there they are. Those are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. That's it. And just as each Spartan soldier was viewed by the king as a brick in his mighty wall, so we're viewed by God as living stones in the spiritual house called Living Hope Lakeport. And this is how the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your lives in increasing measure as you're built together. We mustn't forget it. I mean, you you hear me uh, almost every Sunday. Greet you by saying, hello church. I'm obviously not addressing the building. I'm not expecting the walls to answer. You're the church. We belong to each other as stones in God's building. And, and, and it's a messy endeavor. It's a messy endeavor. We are imperfect people. We don't always agree with each other. Listen, do you realize that you're going to be in heaven with people who don't agree with you? Yep. We're all going to go, oh yeah, we all agree. No. We might as well get used to it. And God puts us all together, all of us who always agree with each other. And he builds us into his house. You see, never underestimate your part and the work God intends to do here. Each single living stone is just as important as the next. Each stone has significance. Each stone contributes to the overall shape of the building. Some stones may may be more visible, but each one is, is, is to contribute. So in what way, then, are you contributing to the overall shape of this church? What's your contribution? And let me dare say this. If you're not contributing, you are not living up to your identity. In him, we have our purpose and our identity. We are all stones in the same building. I also want us to see here that we are all priests in the same temple. We're all priests in the same temple. Verse Middle of verse 5 speaks of, of us as a holy priesthood. You see it again in verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Priesthood of believers. We don't preach a lot on this. We don't talk enough about this. So let's think on this for a moment. In the Jewish mind and in the Old Testament thinking, the priesthood was dignified, codified, and rarefied. Under the old covenant, they were the sons of Aaron and then the tribe of Levi, to whom God entrusted the privilege of being priests. Now in the Protestant church, we talk about the priesthood of believers, but I wonder at times if we really believe it. Practicing the priesthood of believers means we we eliminate this false dichotomy between the laity and the hired professional. I mean, that's not to say there aren't any distinctions in responsibility and authority. That's kind of a subject for another day. I'm not talking about that. But, but it is saying there's not just one or two fishermen in this church. We are all called fishers of men. There's not just one or two ministers here. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. Right? On the back of the bulletin, it's been there for several years now, and listing the staff and the different positions there, and then it goes, ministers. What does it say? Everyone. That's on purpose. Because we're all ministers. We don't go to the temple. We are the temple. We don't, we don't come to a priest. You are those priests. There's no person on earth 
who could ever mediate between you and God. Listen, if you ever enter a church where there's someone who claims to see and hear things from God that others cannot walk right out the back door of that church. I'm serious. Get out. We have the same access to God. At the moment you put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, you are a priest. You, along with every other believer, have direct access to God. You don't have to go through me. And one of the reasons the church exists is to kindle your priestly function. And what is that function? Well, this passage here, it says, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what are those spiritual sacrifices? I don't have time to, to really to, to expand on this, but let me kind of list some of them for you. What are, our, what are those spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ that we're all responsible for? Well, for start is the familiar verse in Romans 12 1 right verse 12 verse 1 offering our bodies all our human faculties to God and for his holy purposes we offer our living our bodies to God it is pleasing to him so your spiritual sacrifice then is offering we offer to God is 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 you it's not offering something dead but offering everything we are, everything we have, everything we hope to be, all our dreams, our hopes, and the things we love, all that's important was saying, Lord, Lord, it's all yours. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And as someone well put, put it really very well, he said the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. That's true. All right, we offer ourselves. Secondly, we also offer up sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us. I'm hitting these quickly. Hebrews 13, 16, the very next verse. It speaks of doing good, sharing with others. For such a sacrifice as God is pleased. Philippians 4, we're told that our giving is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. This is what we offer him. What's your spiritual sacrifice you're offering to him? Is it your praise, even when you may not feel like it? Your sacrifice might be some act of kindness to someone. Your sacrifice might require a gift of money that, that may hurt a little bit. Your sacrifice might be some area of your life that you've kept back from the Lord and you said, I need to give it to you. I know I keep crawling off, but I need to crawl back on and give it to you. Well, our identity as priests gives, us lives, gives our lives such purpose and meaning as we offer up our spiritual sacrifices to Him. Your sacrifice contributes to the overall shape of the church. Thirdly, and I need to get here, thirdly, your identity shapes how you respond to everything else in your life. Your identity shapes how you respond to everything else in your life. As we come to verses 9 and 10, Peter expands on what he has already said. In verse 9 and 10, Peter's going to draw on some Old Testament language in God's description of, of Israel. And he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, follow along. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And if you have the King James Version with that last phrase, the people belonging to God, it, it translates what I think describes Christians quite well. And the King James, for people belonging to God, it says, peculiar people. Isn't that the truth? We are a peculiar bunch. 
But the translation belonging, as the NIV has it in other translations, hits the nail pretty much on the head. It's the idea that we are God's possession that he acquired, that he purchased for a price. We belong to him. I can't think of any greater privilege than that. We belong to him. Jesus says in John 10 verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. The hymn writer wrote, Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. What comes next? Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Wow. We belong to him. And the fact we are not our own really ought to make a difference in how we live. Do you see what this says here, all this language here? Do you see what it says about who you are? It's in the present tense here. Our identity is based not on who we once were, but who we are in Jesus Christ. Listen, we need to derive our significance and identity and validation on who we are and not on what we were. John Piper said it this way. He says, stop defining and limiting your future in terms of your past. Start defining it in terms of your God. And what is it that God says about you? Peter continues, verse 10. Once you were... Not a people, now you are the people of God. Well, how is that possible? Was there something good in me that gave me the right to all these privileges, to my new identification? No, look at the rest of verse 10. Answers that. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. We don't deserve any of this. But by His mercy, we are changed people. Who we are matters it matters in how we live. We shouldn't live in such a way that it would be better if we concealed our identity. At a tea for officers and their wives, the commanding general of a base delivered a seemingly endless speech. And a young lieutenant grumbled to the woman sitting beside him, and she said, what a pompous and unbearable old windbag that slob is. The woman turned to him and said, excuse me, Lieutenant, do you have any idea who I am? No, ma'am, the man fumbled. Well, I am the wife of the man you just called an unbearable old windbag. <laughs> oh, said the Lieutenant, and do you have any idea who I am? No, said the General's wife. Well, good, he said, and he took off and got out of that building. <laughs> See, if our speech and conduct don't match who we say we are, Maybe it's better we don't say who we are. We shouldn't live in such a way that you're ashamed that others know who you are. And after speaking of who we are, we're then told why we exist here. The end of verse 9 says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. All right, how does our identity shape everything else in our lives? We live, it says here, to declare the praises of him, or better translated, proclaim the excellencies of him. God redeemed us, he bought us, he saved us, not simply for our own enjoyment, but that we might glorify him. 
We have a more worthwhile goal and meaning in life than to live for ourselves and seek our own well-being. The answer to our ultimate meaning in life, church, is declaring, proclaiming the excellencies of our God. Our name, living hope. Is that what others are seeing as they observe your life? Oh, there's a person who has living hope. For when they do, we're proclaiming His excellence. We're to show others our true identity, who we are, not what we were. So I ask, and I ask myself, how can you, how can I be intentional about declaring the praises of Him in a dark world, upside down world this week? How can we do it? How does who you are going to shape how you're going to respond to what's thrown at you this week? What would it look like for you and for me to embrace our identity? Because when we build our identity on God's view of us, that is enough. The film Cool Runnings is based on the true story of Jamaica's entry into the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. Four athletes from a tropical island make the improbable transition from track and field and push cart racing to Olympic bobsled competition. Their coach is Irving Blitzer, played by John Candy, who's a double gold medalist in bobsledding for 20 years previously, but caught cheating trying to win a third gold medal. He's caught cheating trying to win a third gold medal. The now reformed coach teaches the young Jamaicans about leadership and perseverance, teaching, I mean, teamwork, uh, winning and losing. Well, the team leader is Derice whose father also had been an Olympic gold medalist in the summer games. And Derice is sitting alone in his room in the Olympic village studying photos of the sharp turns he'll be making at more than 85 miles per hour. And the coach, Irving, he enters, he encourages Derice to follow in his father's footsteps, and then he begins to leave. And as he's starting to head out the door, Derice stops him. Hey, coach, I have to ask you a question. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. I mean, I want you to, but if you can't, I'll understand. And Irving anticipates the questions, question and he asks, you want to know why I cheated, right? Yes, I do, he asked. Irving ponders this for a moment and he answers, that's a fair question. It's quite simple, really. I had to win. You see, Derice, I made winning my whole life. And when you make winning your whole life, you have to keep on winning no matter what. Do you understand that? No, I don't understand that, coach. You had two gold medals. You had it all. Irving shakes his head and he says, Derice, a gold medal is a wonderful thing. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And Derice thinks about it and he says, hey, coach, how will I know if I'm enough? And Irving smiles and answers, when you cross the finish line, you'll know. What are you building your life on? What are you, what are you, where are you looking to find your identity? Is it enough? Is it enough? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these, I believe, timely words.
I don't know how timely and specific and personal to the ones in this room, only you know that and you have already determined what it's going to look like in terms of speaking into their lives. And so I trust you with taking what we have gone through here and applying it personally to us. Each one of us. Your word has been given to us not just to inform, but to transform. So may it do that in us today. Transform us into the image of Christ. That we would leave here understanding our identity of who we are in Him and walk and embrace that for your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.